Welcome to another episode of the Product Coalition European Tour. I'm in the bonus city of Cardiff where I'm running the Cardiff series and today I'm very excited to be joined by James Harding from Dupal. Welcome James. Hi. Great to have you here. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see that we're in a bit of a strange location. We're actually in an old vault, which is a great recording location and hopefully from a sound perspective also makes for, for great listening. Now, before we get started, um, I firstly want to give a big thanks to Dupal for the introductions to all the guests in Cardiff. Dupal is a global online survey provider that has recently switched to a pay-for-value model, meaning you can get started with their real-time, multilingual and embeddable surveys for free today. Just go to dupal.co. That's D-O-O-P-O-L-L.co. Now, this tour and every single podcast episode that I'm recording is dedicated to raising awareness and support for the bushfire-affected communities, wildlife and volunteer firefighters back in Australia. If you enjoy this episode, please show your support for these causes by heading over to bushfire.productcoalition.com. Now, I'm travelling across five cities to interview over 50 product leaders like James to gain insights, knowledge, experience to share with you the Product Coalition global community. Now, if you've just discovered the Product Coalition, welcome. We are a global community of over half a million readers, 6,000 Slack members and thousands of podcast listeners. Now, before we get stuck in, I need to give a huge thanks to a couple of brands and people that have made significant donations to support the cause at bushfire.productcoalition.com. First up is UserPilot, which is a code-free user onboarding and adoption tool designed especially for product management teams. UserPilot helps to increase conversion, user retention rates and reduce churn by guiding new users to their first aha moment with interactive walkthroughs, contextual product tours and onboarding checklists. It allows product managers to build full, customizable, behavior-triggered in-app experiences with a simple visual editor. Go to userpilot.com to book your demo and get a free trial. Shobit Chug is the intentional product manager. Shobit's a Google product manager and he helps product managers become product leaders. They can have careers that they're proud of. Head to intentionalproductmanager.com and sign up for Shobit's free class on the habits that turn product managers into exceptional product leaders and help them move through their careers fast. Product-led teams like Mixpanel and Flexport know that the best time to capture engagement is when a user is already inside the product. That's why they use Chameleon to drive feature adoption, build onboarding flows, and gather user feedback. You can give it a go at trychameleon.com forward slash success. Two individuals I'd like to thank for their, indiv- uh, for their donations is Rich Miranoff and Chris Miles. James, we can get stuck in. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to this session. We're going to be talking about learning from your mistakes. Yeah, it's an I'm important ho- one. I'm hoping you got a few to, to rattle off. Um, I know I, I certainly have. So this, this is going to be good, good fun. Now, you would have seen in the Melbourne podcast, we had an icebreaker around, a bit of a oh, locals yeah. guide. Um, <laughs> and in the Sydney podcast, we had, had the pub quiz. So for the European tour, I've, I've gone a bit different. And for Cardiff icebreaker, I've gone with, is it Welsh or not? Okay. All right. So first up, we've, we've got a couple of products and um, going to get your read on whether you think they're Welsh or not. Okay. All right, All right. So first up is the radar. I'd say that's Welsh. Hacker. Blind guess. <laughs> Blind guess. <laughs> well, you've got a 50% chance and you've nailed it. So Swansea born 
Edward Taffy Bowen was one of the f- one of the pioneers in the discovery of the radar. He built the first radar transmitter in the 1930s, and this inspired him to build smaller transmitters, which could be fitted into aeroplane cockpits. Without radar, the Second World War could have been a very different story. So next up is the MRI scanner. I'd say not Welsh. No? Yeah. Any reason? No, again, I'm not yeah. sure, but I just don't feel like... That looks bigger than Wales. <laughs> In the nicest <laughs> way. <laughs> um, wh- where do you think then? The US. US, yeah, I can, I can see why. Um, but you'd be right, it's not Welsh. Okay. It's our friends a little bit further north in Scotland. Oh, wow. The breakthrough for the MRI scanner was made by a team working at the University of Aberdeen. In 1980, the team obtained the first clinically useful image of a patient's internal tissues. There we go. Right, next up, I've, I've got some words, and either they're Welsh words or sayings, or I just made them up this morning. <laughs> All right, uh, how is your Welsh, Welsh vocabulary? I, I lived here for five years, so I know right. a few little things. Right, but, uh, okay. Yeah. All right, this is going to be good. I'm hoping you fully integrated yourself <laughs> into a Welsh society and language. Let's, let's give it a go. All right, okay. First up, we've got unko munko. Sounds made up to me. <laughs> unko munko, you know, like unko munko no. over there. <laughs> um, so it means him over there. Oh, really? For the Welsh people listening, I've probably got the accent completely wrong with a bit of Cockney that's thrown in. <laughs> yeah, so that's what's thrown you off, and it's the Cockney, yes, sir, Cockney sir, Aussie yes. twang that's thrown it out. All right, let, let, let's give the next one a, a go. Chuel i Gugan. I'll go get your Chuel i Gugan. No, I think that one's made up as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's Welsh. Oh, man. I'm rubbish it's it's uh, <laughs> the Chuel i Gugan is a big round thing with horses on, otherwise known as the merry-go-round. Oh, wow. See, so you can slip that into conversation next time. Uh, next time, next time you're down the pub <laughs> in Cardiff. Uh, all right, that's that's the icebreaker done. Um, well done, you got one out of four. Pretty poor there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think you do have another five years in Wales. So. <laughs> cool. Well, let's um, let, let's get stuck into learning from our mistakes, James. Sure. Before we do though, would you mind sharing for the audience a bit bit of your history, career, background, and set some some context for us. Sure. So right now I'm the lead developer at Dupont. Um, I didn't used to be in design and development, though. I originally did my master's in literature and um, then self-taught myself whilst I was sort of travelling around Asia and building websites on the side and, and doing a sort of freelance thing there. I joined Dupol around just over two years ago now and sort of um, hit the ground running. I had to learn a lot, but um, been loving it, really enjoying the product scene. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's it's always interesting to hear people's start and where they are today and how that paths change. Was there any connection at all to engineering from literature back in the literature literature uh, days? I think there's a lot of connection in terms of like the research you have to do and learning to learning to be a researcher. That's right. Googling things and trying to find, you know, the answers to problems is a lot of what we do on a day to day basis. And you know, writing good copy is also a really important part of framing your app and, and sort of helping your users understand what you're doing and what they need to do. So Having a good command of language from that can can really help. Right. Um, originally, I wanted to be a travel writer, 
which is oh, okay. um, why I, you know, I built my own blog and that's how I learned how to um, you know, build things and build websites. So that's kind of really where it started. So it, it doesn't feel like a normal sort of transition, but there was a lot of, um, a lot of sort of like goalposts on the way there. I imagine your your commenting in the code is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to think so. Well formed verses, <laughs> little sonnets, <laughs> yeah, little sonnets <laughs> in the code. Yeah. Um, just just gives it a bit of spark for for the engineers um, reading through. Um, fa- fantastic. So um, today we're going to talk about learning from mistakes. Um, get us started. Uh, what what mistakes have have you been? making and and learn from when it comes to to product decisions so far one of the ones that sort of comes to the forefront of my mind is a recent feature that we've released which is open text and so it's a new question type for us and we've been holding off on building it for around three years now we've had a lot of requests from our users it's something they've really sort of pushed towards and we've been a bit opinionated in, in holding off from um and the reason why we've now sort of changed our mind and realized that maybe it was mistakes hold off um, there's a sort of lot of things involved in that. And I think the the main thing is the fact that we needed to understand the solution that we were trying to solve for our users. We've got two sets of people who use our platform. We've got the respondents and we've got the people who create the surveys. Right. And we felt that re- response rate was a really important part of, you know, what our users wanted from the platform. Getting more data is, is better. Um, but, you know... Uh, sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought. No worries, all good. Um, one of the things that we we learn as time goes by is that a lot of what our users want is actually being able to dig deeper into their data rather than just having more of it. Right, okay. And so while we were protecting the platform, open text, I should say, has a lower response rate than of the all of the sort of question types where you would select okay. from an option because there's more of a barrier in place. So these are the... The big input boxes That's in right. the forms as opposed to choosing from radio bottom buttons or check That's boxes. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. So um, by switching and adding the open text, we knew that response rates would drop down, which would be worse for our users because they'd like get less data. Right. But as it, after talking to our users a lot more and sort of learning from them over the last three years, um, we've really come to see that uh, even though they might have less data, being able to understand one or two sort of really core comments from from users can be really impactful for them right they can okay. show these around you know whether it's you know for the marketing team showing around board meetings that sort of thing and it can get a lot done a lot of action can be made from them right um so that was a sort of uh, mistake we made in in understanding where the real core problem lied for them and what they um what they needed response rates are still really important but it's just not always the main thing so you've gone from being purely quantitative data driven to now mixing it up with a bit more qualitative insight along the way absolutely and you're finding um it, it, it's a it's a worthy trade-off yeah is what i'm hearing um, absolutely for, for a drop-off rate but if you can get some quality around that Fant- fantastic um and uh, can you tell me uh, on, on the same sort of line of thought um what else could, could you, are you looking to do more of or, or less of so i think Using metrics to really understand and make good product decisions is something that we want to do a lot more of. Um, very recently, it's only a small detail, but uh, we've built charts that can be downloaded for um, the data that people have on the platform. And one of the, it was a great feature, really great ado- um, adoption rate. But one of the things that we had a problem with is, is the labels on the charts. Right. Because users can have 
as you know, long a label as they want causes problems with design. So we made a decision to snip them off at a certain amount of characters. That was kind of an arbitrary figure at 22. And we've had a lot of requests for, oh, you know, how can we make this better? You know, this isn't good enough for us. Some of our users will have like a Welsh and an English translation side by side, and it cuts off one of the translations completely. So one of the things that I did this week was to uh, really get to grips with how much the average character rate of our users are yeah, like, right. and dig down to how we can build this to be the best for the most amount of them. So 85%. Right. So doing that data sort of analysis and pulling that insight, we've now made it 35 characters, right. which will account for almost all of the, the, apart from the sort of like top end. Yeah. Uh, using those sort of things will really help us think going forward. And it's something that I haven't done as much of in the past when making those decisions because um, it just hasn't sort of come up. Can, can I ask about, obviously you're, you're, you're in a lead engineering role there um, and you're, you're jumping into the data, but you've obviously got some product direction. So how, how does this relationship between the, the data digging and insights that you're finding that you've just talked about and product come, come together and working with the product team and UX obviously by the sounds of it as well? Well, like we've got quite a small team, right. so a lot of those different roles are sort of done by me and, and right, sort okay. of the three of us, really. Yep. Um, so in terms of the relationship between them, I think it's, it's just a case of trying to balance them, <laughs> you know, the different factors in there and getting the time to do the, you know, put the due diligence in to get that data and, and really sort of understand what it means. Uh, what I like um, that you mentioned earlier was about the multilingual side of it mm. as well. Um, could you tell us a little bit how that maybe affects the, the product design and particularly also from an engineering perspective? How, how do you handle that? It's really hard because right. you don't want to over-engineer the platform. Right. And you don't want to give too many, you know, sort of options to the user. I mean, creating a... The hard thing about multilingual is trying to maintain a really good user experience. Right. It's also got a lot more overhead on the development side of things, even from like doubling up on the translation strings. It's a lot of extra work to do and right. it can slow down release. We want to work in like a really lean sort of methodology. And when we're waiting, you know, an extra week to get translations before we can get a feature out, it can it can hold us back. So it's, it's been a challenge, I think, um, but it's also one of our strengths as a platform. <laughs> so right, okay. again, it's about that balancing. Like this is something that our users really need and want. We've got to be the ones to find uh, a way to do it well for them so that it is it maintains that simplicity and easy to use sort of um, features without <laughs> yeah, putting the burden on the users. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the product, is it designed for being embedded in other sites? Yeah, so that's something we, re we recently built. Um, so it can be embedded into blogs and to you know, different websites. Right. And um, one thing that we've had a lot of uh, success with recently is into articles of like online media. Right. Um, the engagement with it is, has been really high. And one thing it's been really good at is getting emails. Right, okay. We feel like we found that by asking a few questions of people, again, not the open text because this can sort of add a barrier there, but easy engagement questions, um, people feel like they've invested in something and more likely to sort of uh, right, okay. leave that email at the end. Right, nice. Which is something our users really appreciate. Right, okay, yeah. okay. Um, this is really, really good. And so working and designing the, the product um, for users that complete surveys versus customers that I suppose are paying you mm. for the service, do you see different um, needs from, from both? Is there any conflicts there? I, absolutely. I think, you know, 
for a respondent, it needs to be as simple as possible. Right. Um, you don't want to put any sort of barrier in the way um, of them answering if you want to get that completion done and get the best answer for them. Um, at the same time, you know, if that data isn't valuable to the user that's collecting it, it hasn't got, you know, the, you know, it's not worth much for them. So really there's a there's a conflict there because we need to balance getting as much data as possible without um, getting sort of data that doesn't have much meaning to mm. it. And I, I know from my own experiences throughout my career of building any sort of survey or online form, um, having to keep myself in check of why am I asking yeah. this question? Like if I had a thousand responses to this true or false answer, what would I do with that data? Do you find yourself having to educate your, your, your customers on, on those types of concepts? Right, um, okay. I think it's really uh, a real difficult thing to get proper actionable insights, as you said, and that's one of the you know sort of the missions that we want to do is help our users get those actionable insights. A lot of that's education. Right. So we've recently released our new blog, um, so we put a lot of work into into getting that out there. Um, Mark, our CEO, does a lot of work on that, and that's sort of educating our users on to you know wh- why are they asking their surveys, what questions can they ask. And how will that affect their users? For instance, talking about the open text and how, you know, from the data we can see that it drops, you know, uh, 10, 15% of your, your users you might lose just from asking that question. Right. So do you want to ask it at that time? Do you want to start with it and trying to help them sort of uh, construct a survey in the best way possible? Yeah, I imagine for a lot of businesses, they want some, a lot of deep data around people. And sure. uh, I imagine there's quite a, a bit to think through with regards to the timing of when to ask some really personal questions mm. and when, when not to. And I imagine you've also got regulatory overheads of what you can't ask people, maybe. I think, yeah, that's been something that's come up a couple of times recently right. and it's it's an interesting one. Right. You know, there's, um, there's a lot to think about when you're dealing with data and, you know, making sure that's protected and, you know, who can see that data from our, from our side. You know, we've had questions about, like, you can see things on the platform and, and, and whatnot. So, yeah, it's something to think about. Can I ask, um, what what have you learned um, since since entering into this role that you didn't know before that now you would give as tips or advice um, for anyone moving, particularly, I suppose, from an engineering practice that's also wearing a product hat like, like you are? Absolutely. I definitely tend to over, over-engineer things. And right. um, one thing that's really helped me is, is asking why more, right. sort of almost annoyingly, uh, you know, five times, keep asking why, so you can really understand the, the problem that you're dealing with and the solution that, that you're trying to solve. And one thing that we had a couple of years ago was a lot of requests for um, grouping and categorizing polls that people had um, been answering. And it seems like a fairly simple, you know, easy feature to build and something that'd be useful. But we dug into it more. We asked why many, many times. And found out that, you know, what the person was doing was just duplicating the same poll many, many times. And what they really wanted was to do the same poll many, many times. That was what was filling up their account with all these extra things they needed to group and organize. So we eventually built a feature called Recurring Polls, which allows them to sort of see and track over time or across groups. It's been a really great feature and people really enjoy it. But if we'd have taken it at face value, we, you know, we basically wouldn't have ended up with the right thing. And I think... On top of that, you can get into the state where you'll build everything that comes, you know, gets asked, and probably a few more, and you're kind of really missing what, what what's being asked of you. 
And so that's something that I've really had to learn over time because I get excited about new features and I just yeah. want to dive in and, yeah. and, and build them. As we know, it's, it's the build it, then you've got to support it, then you've got to manage it, then you've got to yeah, regression yeah. test it. And um, I, I love that story to, to hear that you found um, a particular instance where you've prevented making the mistake as opposed to learning from the mistake. You've, you've <laughs> learned from those mistakes and now yeah. you're on a preventative path um, sure. of being able to prevent creating um, features that aren't loved um can i ask um how, how do you work with your customers to get into to answer those whys is that do you survey your customers is it qualitative more sort of face-to-face interviews sure. what's your approach we there? do we do a number of things one is to serve them when we've got the tools so it's a, yeah. it's a useful way to do it but a lot of our interaction or a lot of my interaction comes from support requests and then digging deeper into those. So I have um, a support request of, oh, I can't do this or how do I do this or um, something. And when we dig in deeper on, on we use Intercom for this, um, we can get a lot of great insights from that. And um, our customers also really engaged. So we can organize little interviews and, and phone calls so that I can really get a chance to chat with them and, and get feedback that way. Right. Um, and that's been invaluable for us you know those real conversations because often um you know when you've got just data or just metrics it doesn't always give you the complete picture you've kind of got to have both right i can imagine strategically for the business the with the amount of data that you're collecting the data science opportunity um is going to be huge yeah it's something that we've looked into a lot and um there is so much opportunity there you know we do some work with sentiment analysis at the moment which right. um is, is something that you know i really enjoy working with and, and and trying to understand more but some of the things we were talking about earlier with you know constructing a good survey mm. this is something that like really interests us from a data perspective can we sort of from that data, start to understand how what a good question looks like. Can right. we rate that as a as a user's sort of building it and things, um, you know? And I think that's what we would like to work towards a lot more in the future, sort of leveraging that. Can I ask for, for the product managers listening? Uh, they're always surveying or running qualitative workshops, etc., and asking questions of users and um, other teams, etc. Um, working so close to the surveying questioning space that you are on a day-to-day basis what are some top tips for building a, a good survey that product <laughs> management should should yeah. do that, that that might be obvious but they still forget about it or ignore what, what, what would you say and i think you mentioned one good point earlier which is really understanding what you want to ask what right. are you trying to get from this right. you know have a hypothesis that you're trying to test. I think that's a good place to start. I think on another level, keep it short. <laughs> you know, people don't want to be answering uh, hundreds of questions. I've done some surveys in the past where, you know, I've got 20 pages in and I just, I'm just going to give up on it. You know, this is um, an important thing. Uh, again, try and make your data wherever can, uh, quantitative. You know, it's, it's easier to uh, work with that data and draw insights from and only dig down when it's really necessary. Awesome, awesome. What, what product development approaches are you admiring? Who, who else in this space uh, are you are you watching? And, and we, I, I mentioned that we used them earlier, and Intercom's a real, um, right. real great uh, product development company that I love. Um, they've just got a great mission, right. um, making the internet personal. And I think having a good mission to align behind is something that really creates good products. And something that I think we're working more towards a really um, a great uh, alignment phrase that can take you f- forward and help decide what features you build or don't. You know, um, 
it should be something that will you know, cut some things off and make sure that some things are included. And I think they've nailed that um, at Intercom, and that's why they've built such a great and useful product. Yeah, they've certainly gone from strength to strength in that. I think it's probably about four or five years now yeah. following them. Um, and again, doing a lot with obviously natural language processing yeah. and automation, etc. So um, yeah, they're definitely an exciting one to watch. Thanks so much oh, thanks for the for chat, James. It's, it's been great to talk through. Um, you know, m- making mistakes is uh, and owning up to mistakes and being able to reflect on mistakes, I think, is very important for anyone in any role, to be honest. Um, but what I particularly tip my hat to is when people are willing to have a conversation about the mistakes. And, and the reason for me why is they're putting themselves in a vulnerable space and I always um, have a lot more respect for someone that's that's willing to put themselves somewhere vulnerable and talk about mistakes and be able to reflect either at home with family or with a peer at work um, or just generally with the industry as you're doing today. Yeah. So th- thank you very much. It's been, been great to talk through. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes for the Product Coalition European Tour, Please do remember I'm committing this time to meet with over 50 people to raise awareness and funds for the bushfire-affected communities of Australia as well as the wildlife and the volunteer firefighters. So please consider donating to those causes over at bushfire.productcoalition.com. Until the next episode from Cardiff, take care. Speak to you soon. Bye.